Hello and welcome to the Fundamental Value Podcast, hosted by Joshua Frank, co-founder and CEO of The Tie. On Fundamental Value, we speak with leading analysts, traditional finance and digital asset firms, and investigate how leading minds in the cryptocurrency space, research, analyze, and quantify the value of digital assets. Quick disclaimer, this podcast was recorded and is being made available solely for informational purposes. Today, I'm excited to be joined by Andrew Gibb, COO and CFO at Twinstake. Andrew, it's great to have you on. Great to be here, Josh. Thanks for having me. So we always kind of start this the same way, which is tell us what you did before crypto and how you found, you know, found yourself falling down the rabbit hole and coming into the space. Right. Sure. Um, so much like a lot of people in this space, I found my way over from traditional finance. So spent largely almost all of my career in banking, uh, pretty much 15 years, 10 of which was at JP Morgan, uh, five here in London, where I'm based currently, and then five in New York as well, which was a, a lot of fun at the time. Um, my final role at the bank was uh, within risk. So I worked my way through kind of finance and risk management at the bank. Uh, so I was head of UK ALM risk, uh, which is liquidity risk and interest rate risk for the UK investment bank, as well as covering for the uh, some of the bank branches we had in the EMEA region. Um, but yeah, then I moved over to crypto three years ago now, much like many in the space. It's pretty much seems like a one-way street, which is great for crypto. There's a lot of talented people in the traditional space, so it's nice to see the kind of tidal wave of people coming over. Uh, it was an interesting kind of journey, one that I'd been thinking about kind of making the move across for a while. Once I hit that 10 years at one place, you start to you start to realize, am I gonna, you know, you start to think, am I gonna be here for life or am I gonna actually, you know, make a change? I wanted to have more of an impact. I wanted to come into a space that I would had more kind of personal interest in. Uh, so crypto is a kind of natural fit for me. So uh, for listeners who are unfamiliar, can you tell us a little bit about Twinstake and what your relationship with WebN Group is? Sure, absolutely. Um, so the kind of 30,000 foot view is that Twinstake is an institutional staking provider. Uh, we're relatively new in the space. We built the product last year and we launched with our first client delegations in October. Um, but we've come with a bit of a splash, which is great. We're already getting a lot of traction, so it's very exciting. Uh, the relationship with WebN. Um, so the company was actually established as a joint venture uh, between two companies. WebN, which is an Alan Howard-backed uh, Web3 uh, Web and fintech incubator. And on the other side, uh, the joint venture was a company called Nethermind, which is a Web3 kind of native um, and it's one of the largest Ethereum clients. So we've got a nice kind of blend and a complementary joint venture between some very technical, uh, you know, technical lead, world leading experts within uh, Web3 and, and more specifically Ethereum, as well as the Alan, Alan Howard backed incubator that provides uh, excellent kind of network and as well as expertise. So that's kind of our right to win within the space. Um, our CEO, who is a incredibly talented gentleman called Thomas Stanchek was actually the founder of Nethermind. And so we kind of brought in Nethermind's best and brightest uh, in order to run our tech, build our product. Um, and these guys have been running it since, you know, for Ethereum from the start of the beacon chain. So they really are kind of top-notch world-leading experts in the space. And then we drew on the network of WebN and you, and you, you kind of 
find yourselves in a, in a position where you have a kind of right to win within the institutional staking space. So there are seemingly dozens, I don't know if that's the right, the right number, but dozens of staking providers. Mm -hmm. I, I recently brought on uh, one of the co-founders, of course, one onto the podcast. We've done webinars with people from, from, uh, you know, from, from other, you know, staking providers like Figment and Block Daemon, Kraken has a staking arm, Coinbase offers staking. There are so many different staking providers. Why did the market need another staking provider? And how do you position the firm to differentiate from the others that exist today? Yeah, you're right. That's a great question. Um, and there are dozens of, of staking providers. And I think I kind of classify different staking providers in different ways. It's a really long list. If you said, you know, I've got some assets that I want to stake, and you just went and looked at the long list, there are more than dozens. There are hundreds. A lot of these are very kind of small names. And then you do get to the more, uh, the larger players, the ones that you've named. They tend to have a broader range of assets that they you know, provide staking services on. They've potentially got a broader kind of uh, array of product suite. Um, but one thing that we have kind of found as an our thesis at Twinstake was that there is still exists a gap for the pure institutional segment of the market. And so it really depends on how you, which lens you have in, uh, for your kind of staking requirements and staking needs, and it depends who you are. So yes, you can go to certain players, you can stake your assets, but depending on what those needs are and depending on whether you are, in, you know, an institution with a particular need for a, you know, a list of needs from a staking provider, we believe still that there's quite a large uh, gap and there's no one out there that is specifically serving institutions as well as we are. So I think one of the, the, the great questions that, isn't asked enough is what do we mean by institutions, right? Because obviously, you know, we have hedge funds. There are a lot of hedge funds that are very active. Obviously, the proprietary trading firms are active. There's a lot of movement with, with, within asset management, but, you know, as well as venture. But where do you see the demand for staking coming from, from institutions? Like, theoretically, a hedge fund is going to have a lot of turnover. Maybe they're not the necessarily the, the best staking client. So I'm curious as to where you kind of see the opportunity today, but also where a year, three, five years down the road, uh, you see that moving, you know, like are pensions going to be staking and endowments and sovereigns? That's the way I see it going. And that's the way Twinstick is, is positioning itself. So currently, you're right. It's really the segment that, we're, that we've built the product for. And, you know, in the term institutions is really large asset managers, does include hedge funds, family offices. And within those segments, there are going to be different you know, uses of crypto and some of them are going to be stickier than others, i.e. some are going to come in and out the door and some are going to be kind of more long term plays where staking becomes much more of a viable option for these guys. So what we're looking to do and what we've done is build a product specifically tailored for that segment. There, my thesis is that there is a I keep calling it a tidal wave of volume and I really believe it is a tidal wave of volume on the sidelines from the players that you just named. So beyond asset managers, if you look to the more traditional side, I'm including banks in this as well, pension funds. As crypto develop, uh, continues to mature and develop, it is, is completely natural that these types of players will, would want to come into the space. There are definitely steps that need to happen before they do come in. But if we think about crypto and mass adoption and how we really get to where we want to go, we need these players to come in. So Twinstake is looking to get ahead of that in, in many ways and say, okay, what are their needs? What are their requirements? Uh, and then how can we build the perfect kind of staking product for them? And so what are you seeing from a, a geographic perspective? Is there any sort of mix, right? You mentioned a lot of these large institutions are getting ready to move into crypto. 
obviously I'm, I'm sitting here in New York, you're in London, right in New York, you know, obviously we're, we're sitting here with the SEC breathing down the back of crypto companies, the, the NYAG breathing down the, the, the back of crypto companies. And, you know, at least within the U S there is, there's a little bit of like a, Hey, let's pause and take a deep breath among some institutions, not certainly not all, but, but within Europe, I think that, that, that might be a little bit different, but I'm curious as to your perspective. Yeah, yeah. There are differences that we're seeing. Uh, our focus has been primarily on on the US and Europe, so I probably won't speak about Asia. But in terms of the – you can't really speak about this without without talking about regulation, so we may as well get into this. Yep. Um, you know, we've seen from the SEC, like you say, and within North America, uh, regulation by enforcement and certain cases that kind of come up and, and people then react to those cases and say, are we compliant, are we not? There's kind of in-house fighting that you're seeing within the U.S. between players and, you know, individuals and players in the space, which is likely to continue, many are saying, until you kind of, till your 2024 elections. So there's a sense of gamesmanship going on right now. Within Europe, we have taken a tight, slightly different stance. Uh, we are just about to put Mika into, into law, so uh, markets and crypto assets regulation. That is a... Uh, it's an it's a innovation-friendly uh, framework for all kind of 27 member states within the EU that addresses crypto risks for all crypto issuers and um, those that are, uh, well, essentially it covers custodians, trading platforms, exchanges, and those that provide advice on, on crypto. It's a different tact and different approach to what we're seeing in the US, and I think that tends to lead to an extent some of the innovation that we're seeing within within the regions. Um, so ours, so within Europe in itself, I think the fact that we have this, what I would consider a well-thought-out framework that's being put into law. So it should be ratified at some point in April. 18 months after that, uh, all companies that it applies to, applies to should be compliant. And in that sense, it provides a little bit more clarity and, and crystallizes a kind of subset of rules that enables uh, the European market to, to to play to and therefore to innovate to. So I think that's a really good thing for Europe. Right? And I think it'll be a boon for innovation because historically within Europe, the, the narrative is that innovation is kind of led by the US and, and Europe kind of lags. And I think in some sectors, I think that has applied. So uh, when I think about that, I think about tech, a lot of tech innovation from the US relative to Europe. We've got a few large names, but fewer than in the US. Um, if I think about banking, uh, I've obviously got a, a, a career in banking so I've, and I've worked in both areas. So I can tell you there's a, a, a big difference between US banks and the innovation, I would call it, within banking in the US and banks within Europe. Uh, an anecdote, if I may, is that you know, when I think about innovation between, between the two within the banking space, I remember looking at the list of banks within within Europe when I was there as a segment, look at Italy, scroll down to the fifth largest bank in Italy. It was founded in 1472, which was around the time that America was, you know, it was, was founded in itself as a country. So there's, and they're still doing borrowing. They're still doing the same lending. So it's very much a... 300 years before America, but yes. <laughs> well, I think I'm talking about the landing of the ships. Oh, discovery, <laughs> discovery. Discovery. Of America. Well, yeah. 
So. The second discovery after after Lars discovered it about a thousand years before. But, yeah, yeah, there's different dates in which we discovered Aladdin, but we'll go with the nineteen ninety. Yes, yes, yes. But the point around innovation, you know, it's it's it, the narrative is that it's a touch. Uh, it it lags the US in those spaces. Good news for crypto is that adoption in the US and adoption in, in Europe is happening. It is a touch below, behind uh, the US and other regions, but it is its um, adoption is increasing. We've seen a few kind of large trends in innovation, uh, cross-border payments being one, although we've got the single you know single currency being the euro, payments across member states is uh, still not ideal. So there's been a push for cross-border payments. Um, we've seen in terms of macro trends, we see some headwinds for proof of stake assets. So as part of Mika, if you're a proof of work, i.e. if you're a Bitcoin miner that's situated in, in Europe, you're going to have to report on your uh, energy consumption. So they're very kind of ESG and climate focused in, in, in Europe. And that, that features through all the way down to the regulation at the ground level. And so that's kind of a boon for kind of proof of stake. Uh, if I'm relating this back to Twin State, and so it kind of drives kind of regulation uh, drives innovation within within that area. So I think in terms of you know the difference between regions, you have to have the regulatory clarity first before you can see the real kind of you know mushroom level of explosion of innovation within a space. And so you know one of the things that you mentioned is that you're building staking for institutions an institutional grade staking business so what do you what does that mean right and and what are the different requirements that you're trying to solve for right how do uh, institutions become comfortable staking with you where they might not otherwise be comfortable staking mm -hmm. so when i say institutional i kind of we built the product hand in hand with large institutions in the space and we went to them first before building the product we went to uh PMs, we went to heads of trading, we went to COOs, heads of compliance, chief information security officers, and said, okay, what would it, you know, what's your perfect stake in front of? What, what considerations do you have uh, when you think about whether you would stake with someone or stake a particular asset or not? And so we took all that on board and then essentially boiled it down to three different segments that we really kind of focused on as an institutional provider. The first, and you know, naturally, comes first, potentially the most important is around security and performance. I think that, you know, so TwinStake is non-custodial, as, as I mentioned, a lot of staking providers in the space are. That means we never take custody of the assets, we never have control of the keys, it always retains, you know, that element of control retains with the client itself through the custodian. But what we're saying is that, yes, it's still an element of trust that clients have to say, okay, here's here's a chunk of change that I want you to stake. And there are risks associated with that principle. So as a staking provider to classify yourself as institution and institutional, you have to kind of be gold standard around security. That's in terms of the way you, you know, front to back approach everything. Uh, and it really centers around protecting the client principle at the same time to be institutional. You have to deliver the returns that staking kind of, uh, you know, promises. Um, and as part of the kind of reason why you would stake. So that's kind of number one. And that's what we built. For, you know, that's what we spent a lot of our time on at the start is to say, okay, what change do we want to offer on and how do we set up, set ourselves up internally in order to be institutionally secure? Institutions should have zero tolerance for loss. And I think that's one of the reasons why they haven't come into the space at the volume that we're potentially going to see is because the tolerance for loss is close to zero. 
And at the moment, it's difficult to argue uh, that the wider ecosystem, you know, provides that based on, you know, the stresses that we've seen in, in the broader market. So that was kind of number one. And we spent a lot of time you know, getting the right people in place and building the right secure product that enables you know, market leading returns. The second element uh, around institutional, kind of what is an institutional staking provider and, and how do you classify yourself as pure institutional is around the enhancements that you provide for you know, compliance, reg, you know, reputational and regulatory compliance, as well as enhancements around your kind of reporting data and analytics. Because you mentioned the long list of staking providers, and there are it is a long list, but essentially when you view this, you know it depends what lens you use to view staking. If you're just looking to get a return on your assets, uh, then that's it. Fine, you're probably retail, but fine. But if you have other requirements, you know that most institutions do, then you need to start to look at the, the differentiating factors of a you know of a staking provider. So when I talk about enhanced uh, regulatory compliance, I mean KYC and AML primarily. So for twin stake, we don't advertise to retail. We just want institutions. When we work with clients directly, we have an onboarding process that is complete, but uh, you know, streamlined for our clients. It involves understanding the kind of source of funds and source of wealth of the delegations that we have on our validators. And in that sense, it protects the kind of regulatory risks and reputational risks on behalf of our clients. I.e., if, if you really care about that, uh, we can essentially ensure that or, or work towards ensuring that your your assets aren't commingled with someone that you don't want it to be commingled with. Whereas a lot of other providers, you know, if you're not worried about that, there's a ton of other providers that can potentially commingle your, your funds. Whereas if you're an institution, that might be super important to you. So that's one way in which we've kind of differentiated ourselves. And the third is around, uh, the second part of that, I should say, is around our, our data reporting and our analytics. If you're an individual like us and you just want to stake, maybe you want to see your positions and your transaction data on a, on a, on a kind of a phone app. If you're an institution, very much not that. You want it to either be integrated into your kind of current portfolio management system so it's all in one place. You want it, You certainly want it to be timely, accurate, complete, uh, you don't want to be scraping data, copying and pasting it onto your blotter. You want to either take it from your PMS, you either want to use an API call, or you want to be sent files on a daily basis. So to some, that you know that, that that's not going to be the sexy side of staking, but that is what institutions want um, over things like you know a, a mobile phone app or a dashboard and, and, and different ways in which they consume their data. I would say the third element that we're now kind of working through is our staking product roadmap. Like there's different ways in which you can view staking, like the future of staking, how it can change. But essentially, we look to say, okay, staking is your base layer. How can we then uh, you know, look towards to you as an institution and say, what are the issues and considerations that you have? Do you have any liquidity concerns, uh, you know, capital concerns, re uh, regulatory concerns that you have to kind of solve for? Do you want to use some sort of enhanced yields? Do you want to kind of start to build structured products on top of a kind of staking as a base layer? So we've got a whole roadmap that's built and tailored for the institutional needs that you know either exist now or are likely to exist in the future. And so one of the things you mentioned earlier in the conversation was the fact that 
you know, there are a lot of staking providers that, that support a large number of assets, but the institutional demand is for a smaller number of assets, right? Institutions don't necessarily care to stake asset 746 down the list of, of largest tokens. But what, what are you hearing? What do they care to stake? Obviously, there's interest in Ethereum. But beyond that, what are, you, what are you kind of hearing? Are there any changes in demand, anything new or surprising that you're seeing in the market? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Uh, because you're right in the sense that the majority is covered by the top proof of stake chains that you would imagine, and that's predominantly ETH as well. So it tends to work out that you look at the market cap of the proof of stake protocols, and that's generally the demand split that you're that you're seeing, as you kind of would expect. Our approach to this is: well, there are two approaches you can take as a staking provider for this, right? You can either say, "All right, we're kind of chain agnostic. We're." You know, services in a tech provider as such that's if you want us to stake this asset for you, if we have the in-house kind of capabilities and expertise, we'll kind of spin it up and do it for you. The other way and the way that we're approaching this is to be a little bit more considered around the staking uh, options that we that we you know we put out there. So right now we've, we're, we're, we provide staking services across. Ethereum, Solana, Atom, Near, Matic, uh, uh, soon to be Osmosis, and soon to be AVAX. Uh, there is that's covering a lot of the demand that we're kind of seeing. When I say that you know you have an option to be agnostic, our approach is to say, okay, what client demand are we seeing from uh, the institutions that we'd like to onboard, and then we're also kind of undertaking our own internal. DD and our own internal assessment on those, you know, underlying protocols to ensure that ultimately we believe in those chains as well. Because, like you say, what you found is well, different chains come and go through different bull runs, right? And so, is the next long tail going to be the same as the previous long tail? My, I would say no. So, what you don't want to be left with is a uh, an array of a hundred plus chains of which. 90 are dead. Uh, you, from, a, from a company perspective, you're, you're left with a lot of technical debt uh, and it, you're just too thinly spread and it just your, your model doesn't make any sense anymore. So we've, we've decided to be relatively or kind of laser focused in terms of what we're offering. And what we've seen is that our kind of thesis and, our, and our, uh, the work we're doing behind the scenes on understanding each kind of proof of stake protocol is aligning pretty nicely with the demand that we're seeing from institutions. Well, I think that's actually a great point that you make because one of the things that I've heard in the market uh, on other staking providers is that some of them are losing a tremendous amount of money because they signed contracts with layer ones to support staking and those layer ones are down 90%. Now they're paying more money on infrastructure than they're actually making from staking uh, rewards and 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 from, uh, you know, from, from the client deposits. And so that leads me into my next question, which is as the underlying tokens that are being staked are extremely volatile on a relative basis, relative to let's say equities, right? And obviously depends on the asset. Uh, how do you plan financially as a CFO of a staking provider? How do you ensure that you have sustainable long-term cash flow when, you know, sometimes the assets, you know, you mentioned that you're, you're staking Solana, Solana is down over 90% from its all-time high. So now we're talking on history, my language in, in terms of uh, as a CFO. Uh, I think you can, I can answer this without even being crypto specific. Uh, 
I won't hold Yeah, do that. I mean, go for that. I'll, I'll get into the crypto because you're completely right. It adds a level of complexity that uh, some other industries don't don't have. Uh, but I'll kind of separate it out and say around how do you essentially manage your cash? Because especially as a relatively new new company in this space, we see this happen all the time within the world of startups. And, and that's how you know, essentially businesses fail because they run out of cash and they don't have prudent cash management. They don't have prudent balance sheet management and they have absolutely no risk management. So you're either running out of cash or you've got no risk management. So you've over, you know, specific to crypto, you've over leveraged yourself and you've completely had a blowout. So I would say that it's really advantageous to get in the right finance team relatively early on your, on your journey and a CFO if, if you can. Um, the first thing to understand is your cash position and your cash projections. You have to be as detailed as you can to understand your overall cost base and you have to align this with your growth plan. You have to then kind of separate out you know, your elements of your fixed cost and your variable cost and you have to essentially overlay a ton of buffers and, and assumptions on your growth plan to make sure that you understand to the deepest level you can your cash projections and then anything on the downside that can happen to those expenses. If I relate it back to kind of our business, there's the additional nuance of the fact that so our business model as a staking provider is generally speaking, and this does apply for most other staking providers as well. We take a portion of the overall commit. Uh, we take a portion of the overall rewards that the uh, the client will get from from the protocol from through staking. That ten, that is with uh, that's in native. So if you're offering staking services across ten chains, you're going to be getting in revenue uh, you know, with ten different tokens or ten coins. As you say, those 10 coins, <laughs> the volatility there is underlying is like, you know, not like many assets that we've seen previously. And so when you, you have to then essentially overlay that to your cash projections that you've done a lot of analysis on. You can manage your cash through funding. I know that a lot of startups get a lot of funding early on. So, you know, your cash can manage your cash in that sense and you can figure out, you, you have to understand your cash burn and therefore your cash runway. But a lot of companies, you know, that runway won't be that long. And then well, and the runway can also change overnight, as we saw with the FTX collapse and Solana's price, right? So, you know, it's it's. Are you are you are you hedging with options in any way? Like, are you? So that's when the revenue side of things comes in, and that's where you have to align your overall, I would say, treasury risk management framework to your overall objectives and risk appetite. Because what are you trying to do as a as a what's your core business model? Is it to run a kind of prop trading house and just say, okay, our revenue's in, in, in native. And so we're just going to build a portfolio and, and, and look to maximize returns. Or are we going to have a kind of more prudent treasury management whereby we're kind of converting to fiat on a periodic basis, de-risking ourselves in case we have that 80% drawdown. I think that becomes very specific to the, the, uh, to each company and how they are, uh, position in terms of their runway, their you know their cash profile, and their overall um, you know uh, risk objectives. So for us at the moment, uh, we have a treasury risk management uh, policy in, in place, uh, and essentially we are managing that um, balance sheet as prudently as we can by overlaying kind of generally on the downside the scenarios in which you do get drawdowns of 90 percent. And then how that impacts the business and whether you're able to kind of consume those, you know, losses, you know, the, or, you know, downside on your revenue. Currently speaking, you know, there are options, like you say, that you can hedge 
um, primarily through perps if you if you, if you know if you're so inclined. Um, but what I would say for twin stake is that we're kind of managing that on a holistic kind of balance sheet view to make sure that a you know the, the two things that bring bring down cash and over lever over leverage are kind of managed early on in our journey. Because what I would say is you know and and the the ecosystem in general the 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 crypto sphere in general has not got a good track record of those two things. It's not got a good track record of prudent risk management. And so the earlier you can kind of think about this, the better. I mean, some of it is like shocking, shocking to me. Oh yeah. I mean, I, I have uh, I, I spoke to somebody who just left um, was, was the, was running. I don't want to, give anything specific, but was a senior executive at a multi-billion dollar crypto hedge fund left and went to a traditional hedge fund uh, to work within crypto because they said that, you know, um, the hedge fund, the crypto native hedge fund didn't under, didn't know what a sharp ratio was. And they were just like, I, I can't stay. Uh, I, I just I have to get out of here. Yeah, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I mean, I've had plenty of, plenty of similar stories, um, and it's just like some of the basic stuff annoys me as well. Like not to not to have a go at the proof of proof of work world, um, but like you know, how many Bitcoin miners did we see suddenly go underwater when you know Bitcoin price went well, down? But more it, than miners, the lenders to the miners as well. I mean, a bunch of the lenders actually became prop miners because they couldn't do anything with the collateral because the collateral is worthless, and they moved into prop mining. I mean, you've and you've got only a couple of levers to pull there to think about, and if you're not really managing for the downside of, of those, then you know you don't get my sympathy, to be quite frank. <laughs> so, so we, I think we kind of hit on this question already a little bit, but but it's 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 more if we have institutions listening to a podcast now, right, and they want to go and they want to look and consider different staking providers, what are the questions that they should be asking? What are the considerations that they should have uh, when looking at and considering different staking providers? So if you're ready to stake an asset as an institution and you say, who should I stake with? You have to then, you're probably going to go through a pretty standard checklist and figure out what you want from a staking provider, what your, you know, what your goal is and what you're trying to get out of it. You would look first, presumably, at what assets you have that you'd like to stake. Most staking providers are non-custodial, so you'll probably figure out whether that staking provider is integrated with the custodians that you utilize. Um, but once you kind of hit that kind of match, you'd then want to look immediately to kind of security, like I said, because there are risks associated with, uh, with staking an asset across certain chains. Um, and so, you know, everyone's got their history. It's all on, on chain. Has there ever been a kind of incident, a slashing incident, for example, whereby principal was lost? Um, what was the kind of result of that? Uh, so you kind of want to do your DD on whether you believe that your principal is safe with that staking provider. You definitely want to look at performance again. This will all be out there. Like who is on that particular asset? Who's delivering the highest return, the, you know, the highest staking rewards? Some chains, it is pretty ubiquitous in terms of the performance. You have to hit certain benchmarks and then you get the total return. On others, there is, a, you know, there is alpha to be made. It's not hundreds of basis points, but there is a differentiation in, in terms of the overall performance. Um, 
Does that have anything to do with MEV, like using MEV to optimize staking rewards? Because that's the thing we've heard uh, from from a number of different staking providers. Yeah, I mean, it's it it comes down to kind of calibration setups for um, so MEV is available on. When people talk about MEV, we're really talking about Ethereum MEV because I know there's you know conversations around Solana and Cosmos as well. But if we just focus on ETH, which is um, generally when people talk about uh, MEV, the ETH you get a total reward, but that reward can be you know attributed. There's breakdown of that total reward that you get from staking. There's attestation rewards. There's sync committee rewards, block proposal rewards, and there's transaction fees, and then there's MEV. And that's where you know not everyone has MEV enabled. A lot do, um, but it's essentially an enhancement to the yield um, of up to close to 150 basis points, which is a chunk. Which is a chunk. So a lot of this, a lot of it is kind of enabled, but it does kind of make sure that the top staking providers have all this calibrated. They have the right uptime, i.e., the val- you know there's no issues when when you know your validator is is, is selected. Your uptime's good. You've got, your ME, you've got MEV, MEV boost enabled, and essentially you're looking to maximize all those attributed returns you can get um, from your kind of for your total rewards. So there is that element of performance that you should be assessing. And again, this is all kind of available to view. A lot of the um, I would kind of caveat the performance by saying that there's elements that are deterministic. And there are elements of the reward structure that's um, stochastic. So, you know, you have to look over a longer time period because you can get periods where you have, you can get rewarded by, you know, you can see multiple ETH per block through MEV, but that's generally a one-off. And so over time, you can see on one day, your APY, yeah, annual percentage yield can be through the roof, but the next X number of days, you're just getting the basic reward structure. So you would look at your staking provider's performance over a, over a period of time. Um, and in that sense, when I talked about how Twinstake built itself, you know, as a as an institutional staking provider, security and performance was kind of bedrock. So they're the two things that you would ultimately look to do your own assessment of and say, what do I want from a staking provider? That's going to be pretty much, you know, near the top of the conversation. Then as an institution, you say, okay, well, I can see that, these providers have never been slashed. They look good. The performance is pretty much in line. Then you start to then look at the other factors that might be important to you as an institution and things like KYC and AML. Are, they're pretty pretty close to the top of the list as well for a lot of institutions that we're talking about. And it really is a kind of differentiator between us and a lot of players in the, in the space. A lot of, uh, you know, we've, we've seen how regulators are coming down um, on certain players. We've seen the way that they act quite heavy-handed at times and, and um, like I said, regulation through enforcement. So you want to make sure that if you, you want to make sure that you're as squeaky, squeaky clean as you can be. As part of that, you want to, you know, look to understand who else is delegating to these staking providers, right? And if it's other institutions such as yourself that have onboarding processes that understand the source of funds and source of wealth of those delegations, that's pretty, you know, that ticks a lot of boxes for some people relative, rather than say, uh, you know, this it's commingled with a bunch of funds where we don't know where it's come from and, you know, let's see what happens. Because our view is that regulation isn't going anywhere and it's, it's, it's you know, it's, it's likely to come down uh, with a relatively hard hammer in certain areas. And so if we can look to kind of defend that on behalf of institutions by, you know, getting ahead of it where we can, that kind of 
puts us in right in that kind of institutional market segment. Uh, and then the last thing I would say on that is, is again, the way we built our product is if you're picking a staking provider, you have other considerations other than what, what your rewards are going to be at the end of the day. You're going to have to, if you're, you might be a listed institution and you're going to have certain requirements around reporting. Again, you want to make sure that that, that data is timely, accurate, complete, and you're consuming it in the way that you want to consume it. So multiple considerations. Uh, and then once you've gone through that checklist, then you just go to TwinStake. <laughs> so <laughs> I like it. So, so, so what are the, what are the benefits of staking beyond the obvious benefit of you're getting additional yield on your assets? Uh, and then what are the risks that, you know, one should be aware of, uh, when staking? I mean, from a Puritan's point of view, you are supporting the operation of a blockchain, which is great, adds stability and adds security. But it, the main, the main uh, reason why a lot of people are staking is, and you can't get away from that is the rewards. That so also, what are the rewards? Just so everybody kind of knows. I mean, I'm not sure if everyone that's listening is totally familiar. Like, what is this staking yield from the various blockchains that you're you're supporting? And it can be, I know it's variable, right? But like generally, what it's is the It's variable. It tends to be uh, the inflation of the, of the coins. So they, they will, you know, each protocol will have its own kind of uh, inflation schedule. But essentially, as part of the services you're providing as a validator, you are rewarded, you know, for some of these inflation um, coins. And they can be, I think I went into a couple with ETH, they can be four different types of services and validation services. So certain requirements um, in order to ensure that the blockchain is, you know, working as it should and is secure, then you get rewarded on that basis. The depending on the chain the rewards can be you know single digits like we're seeing with eth which is I'll call it five six percent currently um but other newer chains can use utilize that reward structure in order to kind of get people to use the that, that uh, their protocol so for some we're seeing high double digits close to 25 percent um apy on on certain chains which is great uh, which is great for us and it's great for our clients and it's great to kind of get uh, activity on those on those chains. So it can depend. Each protocol will have their own setup of how their network rewards are structured. So we've got a, an internal modeling team that kind of goes through all the documentation of all the chains and understands how each one is attributed and how the reward structure works. Um, but yeah, it's, it tends to be on the, um, you know, the, the inflation of the coins. And then risks. Sorry, I cut, I cut you off there. Yeah, um, there are risks. Right? It's it's. I, often people will refer to staking as like the risk, essentially the industry risk free rate. Uh, but it's not no risk. Right? Anyone that says no risk in anything is is incorrect pretty much all the time. So there are risks, and you can mitigate some of those risks through your internal setups and calibration. So when we talk about risks. Before I even get to slashing, there's, there's, you need to know whether the, your staking provider is custodial or non-custodial because that would you know, potentially increase your you know, counterparty credit risk. If you're a non-custodial staking provider, you may hold your coin. You know, you may hold you know have wallets at a delegate, a designated custodian. You're already going to know that custodian have gone through your own DD. Um, it's just whether 
then a staking provider adds to that counterparty credit risk. If you're non-custodial, you just the staking provider just sits in the back end and doesn't doesn't take custody of the assets and therefore adds no counterparty credit risk. That's the first thing you need to check. You need to understand uh, the liquidity element on you know, assess your own internal liquidity risk for each individual asset that you're looking to stake because there are unbonding periods associated with staking and unstaking. It's not instantaneous. There's often an element of kind of activation. So if you want to stake, you press, you know, you press stake and there is a time frame in which before you start to earn rewards, when you click unstake, there's an unbonding period and that unbonding period depends on the protocol, but it can be a couple of days or, or weeks. So you have to know when you stake that you're not going to be getting that asset back for that given period of time. And that's protocol driven. That won't be staking provided driven until you get to other products such as you know liquid staking, which looks to address um, particularly that element, that element of it and more. So that that's you need to understand all that before you go ahead and stake. Once you stake the assets, the uh, staking provider um, can be penalized and can be slashed under given circumstances. And this kind of makes sense because you want to make sure that you're incentivizing validators in the network by providing the inflationary rewards, but you also want to make sure that you've got no bad actors in there and you're incentivizing people to do a good job, essentially. So in terms of the the, penalties that you can get, if you you know, if you People talk about uptime, i.e., you know, the number whether you're up and running on the network and performing your duties. If you start if that starts to deplete somewhat, you can lose rewards. So you have an opportunity cost, and that's where the kind of performance element of it comes in. If you if you're offline a long time, you can actually start to lose principal on certain chains. Or if you are, you know, acting in a you know with malicious intent, or you start to you know, perform your duty that has essentially potentially catastrophic um, uh, repercussions for the chain, such as double signing, signing the same block at the same height so you don't have a one true you know, source of truth, that's when you start to potentially get penalized and lose your principal. That's where the technical expertise of having the right staking provider comes in. So that's when you can look at history and say, has this, person, has this you know, provider ever been slashed? Slashing, if we, you know, it's not, it's not on every chain, People you know associated with Ethereum, where you do have slashing. Uh, there's not been that many slashing events, um, and when there are, you know, there are, uh, you can insure yourself against it. So there are different ways in which you can kind of look to protect your client's principle. But essentially, you calibrate your setup in order to reduce that overall slashing risk to such a small residual risk, um, and then you've got your, you know, you've. That then you rely on the te- technical expertise of your team running the validators to make sure that it's such a minimal risk, and then you ensure, uh, you know, you ensure that residual risk back to front so that you're never losing client principle. And so, speaking of Ethereum, we have two uh, upgrades coming very, very soon, which is Shanghai and Capella, otherwise known as the Chappella. Uh, upgrades. I don't even know if that's if that's how you pronounce it. But I think it's Chappella. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that and, and what that means for Ethereum? Yeah, yeah. This is uh, this is the next thing. This is um, we're excited about this. So the merge happened last September, where Ethereum transitioned from proof of work to proof of stake. A lot of people are kind of calling this uh, Chappella upgrade the final stage of of the merge. Uh, and 
you know, to cut a long story short, that upgrade will enable people to withdraw their stake teeth. Previously, people were locking up their ETH, they were staking it, they were earning rewards, but weren't able to withdraw. So this set of upgrades will enable uh, withdrawals, both partial and full withdrawals. So that's a, a next kind of event uh, in, in the Ethereum world. There was a lot of talk around, obviously, the merge. That was a huge event. The, the talk around the merge was more, uh, a lot on the technicals. Like people were concerned, is this actually going to, we're going to be able to pull this off? It obviously, as we know, went pretty much without a hitch. This one is less around the technical aspects. It's more around the operational, like what's going to happen to ETH uh, post withdrawals, because you've got this quite unique situation where, you know, you've got a lot of ETH locked up and it's been locked up for quite a long time. Beacon Chain's been around for a, a while now. And this is the first chance that we're going to see uh, for people to be able to withdraw. So I mentioned partial withdrawals and full withdrawals just to go a touch deeper into that. When you, um, when you set up an ETH validator for staking, the staking rule is based on the effective balance on the validator, which is 32 ETH. So anything above 32 ETH doesn't, is not part of the effective balance. A partial withdrawal, which is going to be enabled after this, uh, after this up to upgrade, essentially will automatically sweep everything that's over 32 ETH on all the valid all those validators that have, that have got staked ETH. So what's interesting right now is that there's just over 34 ETH on average per validator. So started with 32, started to accrue rewards. We're now at 34 ETH. So post uh, post the upgrade, there's going to be a partial withdrawal counter that's just going to go around sweeping every single validator um, that's got more than 32 ETH on it. So that's going to be an interesting dynamic in itself. There are currently over 560,000 validators on the network, each with, you know, on average, 34 ETH, two of, so two is going to be sweeped. And so that's going to be, you know, on the market, in people's wallets, you know, with the optionality. It's about two, so it's about $2 billion or something like that. Yeah, that's right, yeah. yeah. And so, you know, that, that's where the question mark comes around or oh, what's going to happen with ETH is because $2 billion freed up just on partial withdrawals. So and that'll likely happen within days, I'd say, of, of the upgrade. Um. So who knows what's going to happen with that element. But the second element is on the full withdrawals, i.e. You're, you're for the first time going to be able to send a voluntary exit message and say, I want to actually remove my validator from the from the set. Uh, and in that sense, the full 32 or the full balance from from your validator will then it'll enter a queue and then will be available to withdraw. So the, question aren't, the questions aren't really, or the discussions at the moment in, in Ethereum is not really around necessarily the technical aspects because there's less concern around whether it, they can technically you know, perform the upgrade. It's really around what's going to happen once that partial withdrawals makes you know the additional two billion of ETH you know uh, on the market and to be able to be used for other purposes. Is that is is the partial withdrawal automated or do you have to trigger that? It's automated. It's automated. Okay. There'll be 16 per block. It'll be quite quick. There's a withdrawal pointer that just goes around, sweeps everyone's. So that will be within, you know, two to three days. That will they you know, essentially will get through that and sweep that two billion to the market. So that's the relative. What, what are what are exchanges, for example, saying? Because obviously, look, with your institutional clients, I'm sure you're having the conversation. But with an exchange like Coinbase, 
or 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 you know other exchanges that offer you know staking to retail clients, you know presumably they're making some decision on behalf of their clients whether to restake those assets or to just deposit those into users' accounts. Have have exchanges made any comments on that? Uh, I I haven't spoke uh, you know with regards to those two options. I haven't had that exact conversation with exchanges, but what I would say is that uh, when you look to kind of restake, don't forget you have to uh, you have to um, have thirty multiples of thirty two. So again, mm-hmm. it depends on whether you are talking about retail investors here or I'm imagining just Coinbase, right? Which is commingling funds, certainly. Oh, it, it, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see how they. I don't know which way they would go. What I would say is that there are going to be certain, and not Coinbase here, don't want to get it, but there are going to be certain distressed uh, or, or companies that have previously been distressed that are going to potentially need that liquidity. So when that, you know, I'm talking probably more on the full withdrawals here um, rather than on the partials, but any liquidity that's coming out of the network or is able to then withdraw, a certain portion of that will be required, right? whether it's from, you know, I'm actually not going to name names, but distressed, previously distressed yeah. names within, within the industry. And I think that's therefore going to put some potential downward pressure on, on ETH. On the full withdrawal side, that's the big kind of question mark. Like, So I said there's 560 plus thousand validators currently. That's been steadily increasing. So we were at like 450 in June last year, 500 at the year end. That's kind of been going up. So it's really a... You know, and you speak to different people, different institutions have different views on, on what's going to happen post upgrade because you've been seeing that the numbers of validators in the set has been increasing. And now potentially that's going to accelerate because we have more clarity and over the withdrawals process. And so if you didn't want to lock it, lock it up before, if you know, if you didn't want to lock up your liquidity and you weren't able to interact with kind of liquid staking protocols, then this is your opportunity. So there might be some that join the activation queue that are going in immediately post uh, post upgrade, but then you're also potentially going to have people that want to exit for various reasons. Uh, and so then you might have some of the downsides. So how these interact with each other will then ultimately potentially play through to, to what we're seeing in the underlying asset being ETH. It's what we're also trying to discuss from a, as a staking provider with, with our clients is the length of time in which uh, they'll be able to withdraw because there is an element of a queue and there's a lot of validators. So it go, essentially, you know, there is a wait time bef- between the upgrade happening on the 12th, voluntary exit messages being sent and actually receiving you know, the 32 ETH. There, and that gap, that wait list is, that's where a lot of the conversations that are happening at the moment are. It's like, like you say, what do people, you know, what are people going to do with the, do they want the ETH back? Do they need the liquidity? You know, are they still believers in the, in, in the, under, you know, in ETH itself? Like my view is, part of my view is that if you staked uh, ETH when you didn't know when the withdrawals were going to be, you believe in ETH. So why do you need to withdraw it now? I'm not saying there's going to be no withdrawals. Of course, there's going to be some, but like when we talk about what percentage of the validators are going to start to exit, and you get some people that are really concerned that there's going to be a lot kind of, you know, looking to exit and sell. You know, there's a few factors that kind of, or a few uh, areas in which I would say that that might not happen, or I would suggest it 
probably won't to the degree in which I'm hearing. So that being one, I you know people have, but if you believed in ETH before, you probably believe in. And do you now. think that's even priced in in some way? It's really difficult to to see how. I think there's going to be short term volatility for sure. I think because you have to, you've got both factors in play. I now that we have clarity, and let's just see if it, you know it goes as we suspect. You're going to have certain certain uh, parties that need to exit, but you're going to have certain parties that are now kind of more risk on that are going to be like, great, I'm in. And so how that interacts will be, you know, that's going to be a, a, a key driver of, 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 you know, how ETH price. Do, do you have a large number of prospects that are basically like we're waiting for this to happen and then we are going to delegate our ETH or are most of most of your prospects already in that, you know, do you think we'll be in? No, it's the former. Most, uh, most started to, the conversations were back in the last year, very risk off. Started this year, and especially when the uh, originally it was end of one Q announcement for the for this upgrade to happen, we started to see a little bit more risk on sentiment. We've had the conversations with clients around, okay, this is great. We're now having the much more pointed conversations of some large tickets that are essentially waiting and ready to go. I mentioned the risk appetite of a lot of institutions and there's not much need to take risk where you don't have to. And so I think a lot are just going to see, you know, it's now a week away. Let's just, you know, let's see, see how it goes. You get signals. I, when it, when it happens, what's the number that are looking to withdraw? You can actually see that queue. So that might send a signal to the market. Let's you know, 560,000 validators currently. Once that, you know, once we pass that a point where you are able to withdraw, you can then see how many are in the queue. So if that number is 300,000, that sends a pretty strong, you know, market signal uh, about what's going to happen to ETH. Again, on the other side, you can see the activation queue, which is the more entrance coming in. Um, but it might, you know, there, there, there are probably institutions that are looking to see uh, what's going to happen with that withdrawal queue before they then, um, are willing to uh, enter the activation queue. So I think in the short term, there is a high probability of some volatility on the underlying. In the long term, though, you know, um, I always fall back to things like the staking ratio, which is the number of, you know, you know, the amount of that particular coin or token that's staked relative to the total. Um, and currently, Ethereum staking ratio is just under 16% relative to other comparable comparable chains, it's much, much, that 16% is much, much lower. So some go up in the kind of 70s region. So in that sense, I see the long-term staking ratio certainly going up. In my mind, it's, call it 30%, because, you know, it's, ETH is still different to other chains, right? You still have a lot of utility, whereby you're not going to, it's never going to reach 75, 80%, in my opinion, because you've just got, so many use cases for ETH relative to others, but certainly higher than the 16% we see today. So there might be some players that need to exit post the 12th of April, but long-term or medium to long-term, I see that staking ratio slowly climbing to a kind of more steady state that's aligns with other L1s. And how, how long, so you mentioned that there's this one-time sweep that's going to happen how often is that sweep going to happen once 
you know, once unstaking becomes possible, is this like a weekly thing? Is it a monthly thing? Is it, is, does it continue to be automated? The partial sweep is what I'm referring to. Yeah, that's actually something I, I don't know. Um, the partial sweeps are automatic. Don't know on what periodic basis. Uh, I know they'll continue to be automatic regardless of. I believe so. I believe okay. so. ETH will the and and if it isn't, you should uh, think about it. Uh, the effective balance is always the rewards are always going to accrue on the thirty two. Right. So you'd want to you'd want to sweep. Yeah, it makes sense that it's automatic and and yeah. you know if that period basis isn't you know it, it should be swept. Um. So that's going to be uh, certainly an interesting uh, dynamic. I think that the other thing I would kind of say on that is um, where is ETH now? So, uh, 18.1900. Yeah. So a lot of the ETH that's been staked is kind of underwater. Uh, you know, we've, we've had the price path that we've seen. And so unless you are distressed and in need of that liquidity, it doesn't make much sense to, to, you know, to go full withdrawals and um, sell essentially a loss. And if you needed that liquidity, if you are a kind of you know higher frequency trading or house or a hedge fund that wouldn't didn't want to lock up, you you wouldn't have locked up in the first place. So my sense is that there's going to be exits, and and I can't give you the kind of time frame, i.e., like how long it's going to take. Just 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 as a rule of thumb, by the way, that withdrawal period is going to be about two days for every percent of validators that an exit. So call it 600,000 um, validators, you get 10% of one exit, 60,000 uh, is about, um, what did I say, two days per percent, so 10%, so 20 days. Something. So it's going to take a while. It's going to, it's. Yeah, that's what people should be, have their eyes open to is, is that. And that's the kind of debate that a lot of people are having. It's like, you don't, it's definitely not a question of. And how, how do you get out first? Is it you pay more gas fees? How do you prioritize in the queue? It's a first in, first out, and you can send the message now. You stop earning rewards, but if you really want to push yourself to, to a, a, if you really want to exit right now, I would suggest that uh, you get ahead of it and you do it and you send the message. Uh, you will, uh, on the other side, not, you know, you will forego the rewards that you would have earned otherwise, but as a kind of reward against that, you will be likely to exit at a quicker pace. And so uh, a couple of final questions. I know we're coming up on an hour here, so I appreciate the time. But one question that we ask all of our guests is around fundamentals. So how do you define or think about fundamentals for digital assets? Right? We're talking a lot about yield on the asset, but why is the asset valuable? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so we, I think I mentioned earlier that our approach to to staking and how we view uh, protocols and the kind of internal DD that we do. So we've made the decision not to just be kind of protocol agnostic. We actually do want to look at the fundamentals. So we've got particular teams that go in that are that we've taken from you know real kind of leading edge experts within Web three and said, okay, go through all the, the documentation, read the white papers. We've got a modeling team that understands the underlying reward structure and how that you know how that's structured we do an assessment of the team because you can't really get away from fundamentals without understanding uh, the people behind them so there's a kind of we take a, a more rigorous process to understand 
really from the foundational level what makes a good protocol versus another. So we've spent a lot of a lot of time assessing, and I think, and again, I think that's what kind of separates us from a lot of others, is the fact that we're doing a lot of work on behalf of of other people, i.e., our customer client base and our client. Uh, potential client pipeline and that market segment that is institutional because it is really difficult sometimes to, to, to get in the weeds and, and see that. And we're seeing the institutions are unbelievable at what they do, but when it comes to the specifics and it comes to staking and, and how the underlying and fundamentals work, we're still adding a lot of value by the fact that we're the ones that are the expertise on how this all works. And so it's our role to understand all that, you know, really get into it in order to then, as we sit with clients for a long time and kind of explain to them how this kind of works and what to expect. Because a lot, you know, the view on staking is um, from some is that it's quite a, a relatively simple. And at the top level, it can seem that way, as in like, oh, okay, here's some, here's some uh, principle to stake and I own a reward. But depending on the protocol, depending on the structure, depending on how it's all broken down, there are kind of nuances and difference that we've worked hard to kind of understand and then ultimately explain to our clients. And so my final question is, what do you think uh, is going to be the most powerful narrative that moves crypto markets in 2023? So this could be on the upside, on the downside, volatility, but what, what do you think is really going to move the market this year? So I'd love to say like an exciting answer. I'd love to talk about innovation and a new killer app and and how we're going to. I know, I know where you're going by saying. That. I know you do. <laughs> the background, you know, the regulation. I don't know if you, do, you know, it's you can't get away from it. And I think it it is. I mentioned the tidal wave of volume. We're speaking to clients who, and and you know, some big name traditional uh, players in the space. You know the market segments that you were talking about through asset managers, banks, hedge funds, pension funds. They need to understand more what's going to happen in the space. They need to understand the rules of engagement and the rules of play before they can come in. And I, like yourself, and presumably everyone else that's interested in this space, is looking for us to mature as an industry. And I'm looking for mass adoption. I think that certainly going to play out for the remainder of this year. I mentioned that in the US, maybe it's going to drag to 2024 because there'd be some you know, background political kind of uh, maneuvering going on ahead of the election. But certainly within Europe, I want Mika to to drive innovation. I want people to have said, okay, right, the rules have been ratified and it's in law. We know what the, you know, the framework in which we're now playing. And that should, it, it provides enough scope in order for innovation to kind of blossom, certainly within this within this region. So fingers crossed, that's what I'm hoping for. And so finally, where can listeners find out more about you personally? Where can they follow you online and where can they learn more about Twinstake? Um, so yeah, come onto our, onto our website, twinstake.io. Uh, we have a Twitter and a LinkedIn. We are often putting out interesting pieces of content, research pieces. Uh, you'll find a lot on, we, you know, we spoke about the, the upcoming uh, Ethereum upgrade. We've put out three research pieces on that now a fourth will be out before the upgrade so there's some seriously interesting content if you're if if you're interested in staking and, and, and what's coming down the pipes um and so yeah we'd love to kind of uh have you on board and teach you more about it awesome well thank you so much andrew it was great having you on my pleasure josh thanks again 